Welcome to another edition of the Dharma Toolkit with me, Chandra Dasa, coming to you from the east coast of the United States in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The river outside my house is sparkling away. There's a high wind. So it feels like a very good blustery seasonal day of the heart, as it were. And we're this little mini series of podcasts about responses to the current crisis, the challenge everybody's facing that are not functional, that are more rooted in beauty and I suppose the experience of the present moment being fleeting and passing through our fingers, passing through our hands. So I'm very happy to be welcoming you back to another conversation. I hope you're well wherever you are. The world continues to be a pretty tricky place to navigate or a particularly tricky place to navigate at the moment. I guess it's always a bit tricky. And it's very nice to be able to welcome back to the podcast Padma Chandra. Anyone listening will have heard Padma Chandra and her friends just talking beautifully about poetry as a whole mode of being that you can revel in through all the ups and downs of this. So welcome back, Padma Chandra. How are you? Hello, Chandra Dasa. Yes, I'm talking to you now from Scotland. I journeyed up to Scotland. Well, I live on my own normally, and I've travelled up to be with my parents. It's quite complicated being here, just trying to work out how we can get our needs met. And I'm here because my mum's one of those people who have been caring for somebody for quite a long time and have just reached the end of their tether and all of their sort of supports were taken away because of the, the COVID crisis. Anyway, it's very nice to be talking about poetry in the middle of all that. And I'm, I'm feeling quite sustained, like I just meditated with the toolkit and it really helped just bringing some meta to myself in the situation. And that's me, really. It's lovely yeah. to have you back. Nice to see you in a different room. Mm-hmm. I'm always really interested. Of course, people listening can't see where you are, but I can see you on Zoom. And it's nice to see a, a different room with different paintings on the wall and some lovely furniture, etc. It's great. And our, our other guest today, I'm delighted to say, is Sahajatara. I've only met Sahajatara once or twice in my life. I did go and see her give a fantastic talk once in a giant tent, which was a bit like the big top. And it was pouring with rain, is what I remember, because I was recording the talk. And when I was editing it afterwards... I was obviously listening very closely to what Sajatara was saying for the second time, but the noise of the rain seemed really appropriate somehow. It was just like the energy of the talk and the kind of vibrancy that she was bringing to the Dharma and what she was talking about sounded just one with the rain in a way. It was like being in a thunderstorm of Dharma. So I'm very happy to welcome you to the podcast, Sajatara. Thanks for being game for turning up and talking about whatever it is that's going to emerge from this conversation. Yeah, it's really lovely to be here. It's quite a novel thing to be doing during lockdown. I'm here in Brighton with my daughter, my teenage daughter, who has high functioning autism, and I'm in my kitchen. Your very nice blue kitchen. I'm enjoying the intensity <laughs> of the blue. Reminds me of Derek German's film Blue. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but there's a whole film when Derek German was dying where it was just a blue screen because that was his favourite colour. And it's a bit like just looking into the blue sky. You've got a similar shade of blue on your walls in your kitchen. It's meant to be the sea. <laughs> My myths about being a mermaid. So, yeah. Ah, we're no doubt going to hear about that more in a little minute. Pamachandra, you've been helping us by curating these conversations. The first one we had was about William Stafford and the Wolf at the Door project. At least on the surface, the image that I carried away from the episode was the river under the river. But there's a river under the river that we're trying to tend to in our lives as something absolutely urgent and vital to a kind of holistic response to what we're in in reality normally, and particularly the, the present moment. And then we had the second conversation with our friend Nagasidi, who's an image maker, an artist. And the image that came out of that conversation was the journey into the dark wood, like being lost in the dark forest, and him talking about making things out of wood, including wood that had been left behind by his father who died, and just like him 
inheriting these pieces of wood and then making things out of them. So there's something very beautiful about those two conversations. So maybe you could find the path through the wood forest today and tell us where it is we're headed in today's episode. That's a beautiful image, the going into the wood, into the dark wood. And for these podcasts, I really wanted to bring that sort of fairy tale magical aspect, that sort of soulful aspect to light, to light that up. You know, in these times of the coronavirus, I do feel that I'm sure we've all experienced that, that there aren't words for it in some ways. You know, people are having an awful time, but also, you know, there's a lot of awfulness and there's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of beautiful actions and things going on, kindness. And I think poetry is something that can actually speak to that in a much better way than most other things at the moment. So it feels to me as if it's taking its rightful place, and certainly for me. And with being confronted in a way by big issues like death and life, I do sort of feel that it brings us to the question of what's really a value, you know, what our priorities are, just as we might feel on our deathbed, just kind of thing. For me, it's sort of like we don't really know what's going to happen. So that was kind of like the whole thing for all of these podcasts. And I know you're doing other ones on the sort of soulful life as well. I mean, I've got a little picture here and I'd forgotten, Sahar Jatara, that you had the myth of the mermaid. But I've actually drawn a picture of you as a mermaid (laughs) on my sketch pad (laughs) because I often find it difficult if I write notes for myself. Unless I do them in picture form, I can't follow them. (laughs) So I've got little images here. So that was lovely. And I do feel like another image might be going down into the ocean. You know, we've got the, the wood, we've got the river under the river, but we could maybe be thinking of going down into the deeps of the ocean and I'm really sort of proud to be and privileged to be a friend of Sajitara and I'm really really delighted that she's agreed to come and talk to us today. I think of her as somebody who has I'm going to start, I want to say one foot in the soulful life but it's probably more than that I feel that it's really vital you're really in there a lot of the time and you are known for your speaking for the earth you know and your care for the planet But I'm not sure how many people know that you express your inspiration through quite a few different creative ways, like you're a writer. You're writing prose at the moment, but you also write songs and images, photography are important to you. When we were talking about this, something that inspires me about you is that you're often got something on the go, like you've talked about obsessions, being obsessed with different things, but you really try and feed the fires of inspiration in your life and the muses. And I wanted to talk to you about that. And I wondered when you first felt that you met your muse, if you maybe you wouldn't use those words, or when you felt called in that way. Well, it was probably when I was maybe about somewhere between seven and nine. And I had this old book of poetry and I was reading it in the garden. I remember but the whole scene really clearly. I was in the garden and looking at the clouds and kind of reading this book. And it was this line from Wordsworth. The earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. And this kind of really resonated with an experience I'd had as a much younger child of what I used to call the oneness, which is a kind of spontaneous no self experience that I had when I was about four. And it just seemed to me like, oh, poets, poets understand this experience of the oneness. So it always seemed to me that poetry was the language of the spiritual life, if you like. And later on, I really, I was probably the only kid in the school that enjoyed hymn practice <laughs> because it contained that kind of language, you know. Speak through the earthquake, wind and fire, a still small voice of calm. You know, poetry seemed to touch on this magical thing. 
So from a really early age, I wanted to be a poet. That's really inspiring to hear. Really fascinating. I've actually got a list here. I sat down and I thought I wrote a list of things that I find help me to enter into the forest or dive into the depths of the ocean. And one of them was feeding the fires of inspiration. And sometimes when we've been in touch with each other, you've just sort of said in passing something like, oh, I'm reading Ted Hughes. I'm really interested in him as an artist. Could you say something about what you're kind of connecting with at the moment? I'm still connecting a lot with Ted Hughes. The reason being that I feel he really embodies the archetype of the artist, like someone who's dedicated his life to writing. My life's quite different, really, in a lot of ways, because I'm a mother. The phrase I used to talk to myself is, I try to stay in the realm of the things of the soul. Just reading about Ted Hughes can really bring me back to that. And I collect sort of magical objects around me. So like, I've got, it's a shame we can't do visual, really, because I've, I've got my mermaid here. She came from the post office near where Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath used to live in Devon. And I've got various other sort of magical objects. I've got a cave bare bone here. I've got all kinds of stuff. And every room really is full of these images just to remind me of my purpose. I love the idea of choosing objects and having them around you that are imbued with this sort of meaning. And I think that you were offering to read something that might have some connection to Ted Hughes. Is that right? Part of the thing with Ted Hughes is he had an experience when he was young, when he was a student, and he was up late writing an essay, and he kind of fell asleep and had this kind of vision, like dream stroke vision, of this fox stroke man who walks in, and the fox is kind of, he's like all burnt, and his hand's kind of bleeding, and the fox just makes this handprint on Ted Hughes's essay and then he wakes up and the line that this fox man says to Ted Hughes in the dream is you've got to stop this you're destroying us so to stop all this academic using literature in that way and for me <laughs> it's gonna sound awful but I feel like I've just done too much Dharma teaching I feel like I've tried so hard to be this person who can give to the world and it's just got really out of balance because self and world aren't as clearly defined as that. And even though there's no actual self, I hope I'm not ranting now, I'm going to my sort of mad woman paranoia, but even though there's no self, it's like there is something there. So you're saying that a river in a river or whatever, there is life there and it's trying to express itself and that can't be held in or denied. So if your path is to make art or to do whatever, it's about me trying to trust that that's as valid a thing to offer as a Dharma talk or a retreat or doing some act of kindness for someone. So for me, that was a really long way of saying that Ted Hughes really helps me keep focused on this thing. of I mustn't destroy it, you know. I mustn't destroy this delicate thing that's trying to come through. I mean, I think a lot of people listening to that will find that just really really helpful because I mean that's something I really struggled with it's really trusting that you know if you are an artist within the spiritual life perhaps an authentic way of doing that is through the way that the universe wants to express itself through us. I've just finished well pretty much finished writing this autobiography which is kind of about the light and the dark and now I'm working on a novel which is a romance set in Dorset and I thought I'd read a little bit from the autobiography. It was quite hard to find the right bit and not get too caught up in like, oh, is this a really good bit? So it's just a bit. And it's just a bit about 
pushing my daughter in her buggy when she was small. A cold but sunny day today, very bright. Me stood like the ghost of a bag lady on Holland Road Railway Bridge, whilst Grace waves to the train driver. Two trains go under at once, strangely thrilling. Go figure, Sigmund Freud. New buds on the creeper on the fence. A pool of dirty water with a leaf floating in it. Walking, pushing the buggy, a lamppost. The cracked pavement with green growing up through it by the wall. Like the transcendental breaking through into the mundane world. Zebra crossing. Bit of red and white tape tied to the fence blowing in the wind. Random sweet dropped on floor with gold wrapper. New grass growing in the grounds of the flats and nice orange twigs. Wind blown sunlight, a road to cross. Hedge, black fences, metal, pleasing shapes. Traffic lights in distance, green. Voices of children floating up from nearby school. Glove on floor, left hand. Sound of wire blowing against metal. Same sound boats make down seafront. Big puddle containing the sun, a twig, the reflection of a bird. Water moving in wind. Fuck, that's beautiful. Car sounds, main road, green lorry, plumber. Law courts, traffic lights now red. Synagogue, white vans to rent, loads of them. Red stone building. Church with very good gargoyles. Cafe on pavement. Tables and chairs, white. Smell of coffee. The sea at the bottom of the road like a symbolic dream. Buses. A pigeon. Sunlight. Chewing gum on the pavement of the world. Later, sitting in bed in the twilight. It is so emotional and silent. The real touch of night on my skin. Grace wakes up and comes for a cuddle. Totally giddy sea trench of love for her. The sunset was really good this evening. Blazing yellow light, white light of heaven, wings and lions, then red and orange, purple and orange, through to purple and grey, till at the last, one red-purple band through the treetops. Then it was gone. Later still, outside my window, the lilac in flower. Month after month of sitting here, hearing the dry sticks of it rattling in the wind, and now, impossibly, blossoms. Grace wakes to find me sitting in the fairy light dark, in the orange streetlight glow. Her face is an inquiry. Look at the lilac flowers, I say, by way of explanation. I see what you mean, she says. White. It was very beautiful to hear, Sagittara. That was one of the most moving things about these conversations is when people just turn up with themselves, you know, not like the version of themselves or the kind of not your Zoom face, you know. <laughs> It reminded me of a few things. One is another friend of ours has been on Instagram this week pointing out that it's Wabi Sabi month and is posting all these beautiful images about this whole Japanese school of aesthetics, Wabi Sabi, the sort of everyday moments of beauty. 
that are heightened just because of the sort of presence that you can contact when you really regard them. So like the light in a puddle or the two trains go into a railway tunnel and the flaking paint around a building or something like that, you know, it can be very beautiful. And there was a sort of quality to what you were reading there that it was very easy to feel transported by it. And it put me in touch with the sense of the dark and the light that you mentioned earlier. And also just connected with Ted Hughes again, and that whole story around Ted Hughes. I've often been fascinated by why particularly British and American people are so obsessed with the myth of Ted and Sylvia, you know, mm. and there's the sort of plumb line back into the classical world and tragedy and all that stuff which is there mm. but there is also something about landscape and light and darkness that people carry around and there's something about the way they constellated their poems that is in touch with all of that that's so beautiful what you said so like, oh wow yeah i guess with ted and sylvia there's two things there's her myth which is death and there's his myth which is survival like in the sort of crow poems is what's stronger than death me evidently because actually he proved to be stronger than these forces of darkness that could have brought him down. I mean, it's a complex thing, isn't it? How much responsibility he had for her suffering, etc. But um, I think he was actually an incredibly strong person who survived the darkness. And I think his poetry was the reason he survived. And I think for myself, that's the reason that I've survived, because art can transform everything. I quite often say that to myself. If you could turn it into art, it's not been for nothing. Nothing's been for nothing if you can make art of it. Not all the people that have died that we've lost or all the sad, shameful things we've done, you know. If you can turn it into art, you can transform it and find the heart in it. Such a beautiful thing to say, Sahaja Tara. The transforming power of the arts. I mean, one thing that I was thinking about with Ted Hughes, which I find inspiring and connects with William Stafford, who we talked about in the first podcast, is... He wrote some books about writing poetry, maybe for children, and he talked about waiting for the fish, you know, fishing, waiting for the fish. <laughs> you know, obviously, as Buddhists, it's all about non-harm, but this is metaphorical. And William Stafford talked about that. Again, it comes back to trusting your own way of looking at things and trusting that the fish will bite on the line. And if they don't, you just keep waiting. This sense of waiting for something, I find that very inspiring and having ideas about things just kind of gets in the way of that process it's really just trusting the process so that was what I was thinking about with Ted Hughes also connecting that with the dark forest when you go into the dark forest there are lots of shy creatures you can't just go barging into the forest you have to sit there and wait and then the creatures might come these conversations are great. Image light bulbs going off in your mind all the time. Suddenly the screen is bejeweled, you know, with ideas and things that keep you alive, as it were. There's a few things that came up there for me. One was this image of the fish and Ted Hughes, particularly all his fishing poems. It's great. Love of angling and pike, that sort of presence moving through the water. The threat that we talked about in the first one. Reality is just there and it's as difficult and dangerous as a pike. I was also thinking about Elizabeth Bishop just when you were talking there. There's a few poems where she talks about, well, being around the water, the ocean and fish. There's a famous poem called The Fish where she talks about, I caught an enormous fish. And she reflects on the fish and eventually she throws it back and everything was rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. She says at the end, she's watching the light and the oil. There's another poem called At the Fish Houses where she talks about watching the fishermen scrape the scales off the herring and this beautiful image of these scraped scales catching the light. But she talks about dipping her hand in the ocean and just the deep cold 
of the ocean. It's almost like a sort of insight experience for her. She's like the world seen through the depths of the underworld, almost like it's that cold, the deep pneumatic cold of the underworld. That's all set around here. Ted and Sylvia, the first bit of their life after they got married was set where I live, just quite nearby in New Hampshire. And similarly, Elizabeth Bishop used to get the bus down from Canada through northern Maine, all the way down through here, down to Boston. And there's a poem called The Moose. They're driving through the woods at night and it's the scratchy, hairy wood that she talks about. And the moose comes out onto the road, like the animal comes out and they're just present with it. And the bus stops and they're looking they're being looked at and surveyed and they're surveying this creature and just her kind of presence, her ability to be present with the thing when it emerges, with the animal when it emerges. That seems to be like a big thing. Just do you know how to be present with what's emerging? And it's very clear from you, Sagittarius, listening to you read. That's also there. That's another thing that I've got on my list. <laughs> the list doesn't seem quite the right thing to have, but being embodied and being in nature, being part of nature, for me, it's a way into the soulful life and these encounters that we have with nature, using our senses and being alive to that. I remember, I don't hope you don't mind this, Sajitara, but somebody once said about you that they came across you sitting on a stone in the river at Vajraloka, one of our retreat centres. I think it was Vajraloka, maybe it was somewhere else. I imagine it being there. And you just had your hand outstretched and you had a, a sort of gnat <laughs> was just on your arm and you were just letting it kind of suck your blood or something. What's that poem about St. Somebody or Else and the Blackbird? St. Kevin and the Blackbird by Seamus Heaney. It was like that. You were just being so sort of compassionate to this little creature. I don't know if you remember that. I'm just glad it wasn't, oh, yeah, and you were naked and you were doing some weird thing. I thought, oh, what's she going to say? Yeah. It's quite interesting if you let something bite you, because I think I just feel like, well, it might be quite hard for it to get a meal. (laughs) I just like little beings, really. All beings are really fascinating, not just the sort of obviously cute ones. You know, like I've been vegan for about 25 years. The world's wonderful. And I think of the world as earthlings, really. I don't think of it as like people and animals. I think we're all earthlings. If we thought like that, then it could be so different, you know. Do you have particular landscapes, Sahajatara, or locations for the earthlings, as it were, the places of your heart and your mind that you walk in, even if you're walking through Brighton or you're walking through London, or there's somewhere, Yeats' thing of he's always walking in in a tree somewhere, even if he's in London? My whole thing is, I've got this place where I go on solitaries, which I call the Mermaid Cave. It's in Dorset, and it's, it's a cave, and it's in the sea, and I've got a wetsuit, and I've got a snorkel now as well. And it's just trying to enter this other realm, really, this realm that's so different. And that's my sort of secret place. <laughs> I'm obsessed with the French Lieutenant's Woman. <laughs> I saw it just by chance. And if people haven't seen it, the sort of central image is of this lonely, strange woman standing on the cob, which is like a seawall in Lyme Regis. And this image just captivated me completely because it seemed to really express how I am, actually. I feel quite alone but not in a bad way you know I like to be alone and I like to be alone in nature and I'm always sort of wandering by the sea by myself and I saw this image and it just really gave me permission to enjoy that so now I go to Lyme Regis quite a lot and stand on the cob and sort of just really inhabit that myth and I'm now an unashamed lonely mad woman (laughs) I aspire to that as well (laughs) me too (laughs) 
<laughs> you make a very good lonely mad woman, Chandradasa. That's a high compliment, Pema Chandra. Thank you very much. In some way or other, to enter into the soulful life, there needs to be a reduction in input in a certain sort of way. Some poets are just like surrounded by people all the time and they just pick up their pad and write, but I don't think there's that many of them. But I think in order to listen to that quieter, more genuine inner voice, there needs to be some sort of simplification. So maybe solitude can be a way of that. And it is almost as if in doing that, and I think some of us experience this with the lockdown, there is a sort of thing to be passed through. Sometimes it's a bit like a very mild dukkha. It could be mild, it could be quite strong, or boredom or something. That is actually the doorway into this more creative life. And I think I recognise it more than I used to. I recognise that, oh, this very uncomfortable feeling is, if I can just stay with it for a little bit, then it will turn into something else. It's like the sort of creature that sits in front of the cave, you know, before you enter the cave. And if you really get up close, it isn't the creature you thought it was. It isn't as awful or, or sort of horrible as you thought it was. It's actually, it's actually just showing you where the mouth of the cave is. And it might even look quite different close up. I certainly experienced that in meditation as well. You could just talk about it in terms of what we say dukkha in Buddhism, that ill-fitting feeling, and just being willing to bear with it for a little while. Maybe have a bear in the cave and bear with it. <laughs> I was thinking earlier when you used the word muse, I was thinking, oh, I wonder if there's an interesting sort of gender thing in that these days, the idea of the muse. But I was remembering reading a book by Janet Gyatso called Apparitions of the Self where she's talking about Jigme Lingpa, famous unifying Tibetan meditator. And he writes this secret autobiography. And there's a really interesting thing going on in it about the presence of other beings, as it were. And in terms of the muse and gender particularly, he does a thing where he's got traditionally female figures who are called Dakinis. There's usually a male equivalent called a Daka, that means sky dancer. But he has male Dakinis which I thought was great. And he also has a parrot who's a dakini. And there's this sense of at the level of earthlings and beings that you were talking about, Sagittarius, it sort of all starts to break down or they all start to come together in a certain way. Is there something in your experience of presence and solitude and being devoted to being in touch with the muse that you could speak to a little bit? Yes. When I'm on solitary, I quite often think of it as being I'm alone with my muse. I've got a lover now, so I'm very fortunate. I've got this really lovely lover. But for years, I didn't have a lover. And I used to go on solitary and I'd see couples on the beach and I'd feel so envious and think, oh, wouldn't it be nice? And then I suddenly realised, well, actually, I'm here with my muse. This romance that I'm writing now, I realised it was a perfect opportunity for me to be able to conjure my muse and be able to have this relationship with him, him in little commas, that isn't possible in an earthly sense with another person. It's basically like a soul marriage. So yeah, I'm very, very interested in that idea. <laughs> we had that poem from William Stafford on the first podcast that we had of this series of three, where he said that his muse was his own way of looking at things. One thing that I do find interesting is how to actually reach that own way of looking at things, because I think we can undervalue our own way of looking at things because it seems so ordinary to us sometimes. I certainly feel that myself. Sometimes I look back at things I've written that seem just so sort of ordinary and bleh, I don't know. And then I just thought, gosh, that's really fresh. You know, I really like that. So I think that's a little sort of something to notice if you are an artist or a writer or whatever. 
don't dismiss what seems ordinary to you. That's something, again, that Stefan talked about, distrust when you think something is really great. Maybe be a bit distrustful of it. And I know that, Sajitara, you had a bit of experience of this when you were writing your book, maybe, that sometimes you'd read what you'd written and you'd had different experiences with that. I burnt quite a lot of the first book because <laughs> I read it in a mood where I thought, oh, no, no, this is just hopeless, you know. But now I've realised that on a good day, things will look very different to how they look on a bad day. So now I just trust that if that's what's coming through, just trust it, really. In terms of sort of courting the muse, I think you just have to make yourself available and be in the space, just be in the space. Don't worry that there's nothing there, because like you said, it's like waiting for something to come. Like if you're waiting for an animal in the forest or a fish in a pond, you have to sit really quiet, don't you? And if you can't sit quiet, I mean, because I'm here with my daughter, you know, it's not always quiet. So surround yourself with the things of the soul. So everything's like mirrors. I think I've gone off topic a bit, but I don't know, I've just come into this thing. It was an artist, actually, like a visual artist, was saying that you don't have to wait till you've got an idea to go into the studio. That's not how it works. You go into the studio, and if you haven't got an idea, you sharpen pencils. And if you sharpen pencils for long enough, then you get an idea. It's something about just making yourself available to presence. I was on a solitary where I had this slogan, boredom is my friend, because you just have to keep passing through that boundary where there's nothing happening. And just trust that if you're open to it, that it will come. And it always does. It always does. Yes. Turning up, just saying I'm here, I'm available. Yeah. And also having images around you and objects. Maybe you sharpen the pencil, but also maybe you start making some marks as well. This is something that I wrote a while ago, but I was thinking about it because of the theme of these moments of vivid connection with life, encountering life as it happens, moments of heightened awareness, of being present with this soulful life, this river under the river or whatever we want to call it. I was thinking in this poem that they were the important ones, the things that would come to us at the end, that would really keep. So it's called Soul Gazing. Glimpses of the moon between the important lampposts of your life that disappear from every photograph, whose language is beyond hearing, not found in any history. Long gazes, when you're not looking, across a beach towards sunset, or in some grey backyard when you are most alone. A conversation that lasts all your life, with absences on your side, Years of forgetfulness. A walk between two rooms. A doorway opening in the middle of a fugue that isn't ever there again. These are the moments that in the end will gather like tapestried moths, returning as one body, humming and glimmering, your only patched robe of russet and gold some scant but real protection against the long dark. That's really amazing. Yeah, I love the These Are The Moments. It's a great refrain. Remind me of you writing to such a tarot, just somebody walking along, recounting these other moments. This is what is arising. This is what is passing away. It's very beautiful. It's like taking those moments as well, passing through that doorway. I've really loved this conversation. I'm just going to let it reverberate and inspire me. And I think I'm going to 
pay more attention to the objects that I have around me, being inspired by that. It's a very lovely conversation to be in. Also, slightly the grief of leaving a good conversation, leaving the presence of friends. Yeah, so thanks very much for, again, showing up so authentically. I find it very moving, Sagittar, that you're willing just to turn up, teleport in, as it were, from Brighton in the midst of your lockdown with your daughter and sit in the kitchen and share these moments of inspiration and beauty. I'm sure people listening out there, whatever they are, scattered across the world with a sense of community will appreciate just your voice, your stories. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I really loved it. I feel really inspired now. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Beautiful. And thanks to you too, Pamachandra, not just for today's conversation, which is awesome, and your lovely poem, but I guess actually just, I think it's genuinely the most helpful thing is for you to have just stepped up and said, there are some really good conversations we could have. And it's nice to feel that this is just the start of them. Actually, there's plenty more that we could easily dream up and make happen. So thank you. Thank you both so much. Yeah, really loved it. I feel my, my moths are glimmering around me and you too. And I hope going out into the world and everybody's moths <laughs> are alive for them. <laughs> That's a great image to finish this little series on, moths glittering around the full moon. Last night was the last supermoon of the year, apparently. Thanks, everybody, for listening in to these conversations, too. We were talking in one of the episodes with Naga City about it's quite hard to make images or make writing with no sense of who you're speaking to. So it's very nice to have a podcast where we know we're speaking to you out there, listening, wherever you are. You can continue to practice with us, whatever that means for you. You can continue to meditate with us every day if you want at thebuddhacenter.com forward slash toolkit. We'll all continue to bear each other in mind as a community, hold a sense of solidarity with each other, wherever we are. Hope you two find a way to make that as creative as Pavachandra and Sajitara clearly do in their daily lives. And we'll see you again soon for more of these conversations and stories and voices. Bye for now.